Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, as we look at the first six verses of the eighth chapter of Hebrews, a book that's theme is rooted in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord offers a, a better covenant because he is a, a better priest, and because he is a better priest, everything surrounding his ministry leads Israel to understand the significance of a new covenant, a better covenant, because he ushered that covenant in. And so as we look at the priesthood, remember, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 all are focused in on the priesthood of Jesus Christ our Lord, because in Judaism, the priesthood is everything. And so we come to realize that within our study of Hebrews and our study on Wednesday night on contentment, the bo both of them dovetail together. I like how the Lord does that because on Wednesday night we're studying contentment. And contentment is all about sufficiency. And, and the, the Stoics used to say that it was all about self-sufficiency. Because Paul would use a term in Philippians chapter 4 and 1 Timothy chapter 6 to speak of a word that was commonly used by the Stoics centered around man's ability to be self-sufficient. So much so that he's able to master the inside of his soul so that nothing on the outside will ever affect his inside. So Paul would use that same word but apply it in a biblical sense. By helping you understand that our sufficiency is in Christ alone. So much so, because he lives within us, it is not a self-sufficiency, but a God-sufficiency. Where we rest in the peace of his sufficiency. And because we do, nothing around us externally affects what's on the inside of us because Christ rules and reigns in our hearts. And that's the essence of, of contentment. In other words, we are dependent upon the God within us and independent from all things round about us. The problem is we tend to live independent of God in us and dependent upon everything outside of us. And that's why we live such discontented lives. Well, when you come to the book of Hebrews, the writer is saying our Christ is supreme. Not only is he supreme, he's absolutely sufficient. And so he picks up on the priesthood of Christ to show you how sufficient he is so that once you embrace him, come to understand him, that you might give your life to him because he indwells your life. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is yours because of the great Christ. It is a fascinating study. And so your understanding of contentment stems from your understanding of the book of Hebrews. If you understand Hebrews and the supremacy and sufficiency of the Messiah, you can learn to be content as Paul himself was content. But so many times we minimize everything surrounding the Christ. So go back with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, because in the very outset of the book of Hebrews, this author is going to hit the primary aspect of the book. He says this, 
God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days or the last of these days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he that is the son is the radiance of his glory, the beauty of his glory, the excellence of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So at the very outset, he lets you know that this one who holds all things in his hands, this one who is, a, is the exact radiance of the Father's glory, he is the beauty of the Father in the flesh, this one, he made purification for your sins. In other words, he performed a priestly duty. Having performed the priestly duty, he now sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So at the very outset of the book, what he does is he takes these, this Jewish audience back to the Old Testament. Back to Psalm 110. Now remember, in the book of Hebrews, the author never says, the author, when he quotes the Old Testament, he just gives the verse. He never says, hey, remember what David said, or remember what Jeremiah said, or you remember what uh, David said. He doesn't say that. He just quotes the verse. Why does he do that? Because they're Jews. They know the Old Testament. Don't think for a moment that Jewish people don't know the Old Testament. They do. And so... He doesn't have to quote it and say, well, you know where it's found in the book of Jeremiah. They know where it's found. So when he talks about sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, ding, 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 bells go off in their mind. Psalm 110, verse number one. They know about that psalm. He doesn't have to say it to them. They know it already. And that's why he never gives the reference or the book. Because they already know it. And so then you come to uh, chapter 1, verse number 13, as he talks about the superiority of Christ over angels. He says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet or for your feet? There you go. Psalm 110, 1 again. There it is. And so he's referencing them back to that messianic psalm because they would all know about the promise given to David about the Messiah and who he would be. And then you come to chapter 3, verse number 1. He says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly caller, calling, consider Jesus. Remember, it's a word that means to think down. In other words, think deeply down. Divide, uh, have your undivided attention focused in on the Christ. Consider Jesus, the apostle, the sent one. And then he says, the high priest of our confession. I want you to think deeply about this priesthood of the apostle Jesus. I want you to think deeply about it. I want you to understand this priestly ministry. Because I want you to make a confession, which means to say the same thing. I want you to say the same thing about Jesus being a high priest that his father says about him being a high priest. I want you to make a confession, say the same thing the Bible says about who Jesus is. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And later on he says he is the Christ, the Messiah. And then when you come to chapter 4 of Hebrews, 
chapter 4, verse number 14, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Same thing. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, this is why Christ is sufficient. Because if he is your high priest, you can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. And when you go and share with him your need, whatever it may be, he is the high priest who can sympathize with all of your weaknesses because he was tempted just like you are, worse than you will ever dream of being tempted, and yet he was without sin because he is the perfect son of God. And he can bestow grace and mercy to you. Nobody else can do that. That's why you go to this high priest. But because we don't understand the priestly ministry of Christ, we minimize the sufficiency of his priestly ministry. Therefore, our lives are so discontent that we cannot even begin to comprehend the peace that God wants to give us that goes beyond all comprehension. Most of us live discontented lives. We're unhappy with everything that's happening in politics, in religion, in our sports world, sorry, Dodger fans, uh, and all those things that happen around us, we just get so disjointed and so disappointed and so discontent instead of being able to sit and rest in the peace that Christ is all sufficient. That stems from his priestly ministry. And so in chapter 7, he talks about that great ministry of Christ. And we saw um, early on that he talks about the magnificent extent of the ministry of Christ in chapter 7, verses 22 to 25, or 28, excuse me. He talks about the magnificent extent of his ministry. And then he talks about the majestic, majestic exaltation of his ministry in chapter 8, verse number 1. When he says these words, now the main point, now the chief point, now the summation of everything, the apex of all I'm saying to you is this. In what has been said, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Again, takes them right back to Psalm 110, verse number 1. And why is that so important? Why is Psalm 110 so important to the Jews? Why is it the writer of Hebrews will refer to it quite frequently in his letter, and it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? Why is that? We need to grasp that. Because at the very outset of Psalm 110, he wants to make sure you understand the divine nature of the Messiah. So important. Who is the Messiah? Because unless you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you will not go to heaven. How do we know that? John 20, 30 and 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing in him, you might have life through his name. You must understand the identity of Christ. Everything about what we believe in is centered and focused in on who is Jesus Christ. So important. And so when the writer of Hebrews talks about the fact, I want to tell you about his majestic exaltation. It deals, first of all, with his seat. 
where he sat down and why he is able to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. Because no high priest would ever sit because there are no seats in the tabernacle or the temple. Why? Because the work was never finished. They couldn't sit down. But because Jesus offered once his life as a sacrifice for our sins, he can now sit down because he can say it is finished. And he did in John 19.30. The work of redemption is done. He can now sit on the right hand of God the Father. And we took you all the way back to Psalm 110, verse number 1. We took you all the way back to Genesis chapter 35 to show you the roots of sitting down at the right hand, the, the son of my strength. And what, then we took you all the way to the book of Revelation to show you that you and I will sit on the throne with him as overcomers because we have believed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But remember, we told you last week that Psalm 110, verse number 1 was the last question that Jesus asked in his earthly ministry to the religious leaders and told you the reason he asked that question, whose son is the Messiah, is because that's the only question that matters. Why? Because unless you identify correctly the Messiah, you will perish in your sins. Everything about the gospel centers around who is Jesus. Because who he is determines what he does. So if you miss the identity of the Messiah, you'll never understand the ministry of the Messiah. So Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Why? The Senate of David, risen from the dead. This is my gospel. Timothy, never forget the identity of the Messiah. Never forget the ministry of the Messiah. You must understand the divine nature of the Messiah. You must understand the human nature of the Messiah. Timothy, you can never forget that. Because everything about your gospel is centered on the identity of who Jesus is. So remember Jesus Christ, descendant of David, risen from the dead, for this is my gospel. It is so important to understand that the very last chapter of the Bible focuses on that. If you're going to write a book, right, you want, to, you want to have this great crescendo moving toward the end. You don't want it to be in the middle of the book and then kind of peter out at the end. You want everything moving toward the end of the book, right? And so the Bible, go from Genesis to Revelation, is this progressive move, like this big crescendo moving all the way to the end that erupts in loud noise. And then at the very end, there is this final invitation given, the last plea to mankind to make sure that you understand what it means to go to heaven. Because you see, heaven is a very exclusive place. Not everybody goes there. Contrary to popular opinion, not everybody goes to heaven. How do we know that? Well, turn back with me, if you would, to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Remember, everything centers around the identity of the Messiah. And that's why the book of Revelation is so important, because it reveals to us and unveils to us who Jesus is. Now, the whole Bible does that, right? We understand that. But the book of Revelation, unlike any other book except for maybe Hebrews, unveils to us who Jesus the Messiah is, King of kings, Lord of lords, and everything about his return to this earth, setting up his kingdom, and then ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. So as the Bible comes to an end, 
there's an invitation. And the invitation is verse number 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Come. Please come. I beg you to come. The bride says come. The spirit says come. There is this compelling call to come to the Messiah, to give your life to Christ. You need to come. Why? What is the incentives behind the invitation? Once you understand the incentives, you'll respond. You'll have to respond. And the incentives begin in verse number 14 with the opportunity and the exclusivity of heaven. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So come. Because blessed is the one whose robes have, have been washed with what? Of course, the blood of the lamb. And yet, outside are those who are not blessed. Outside are those who will experience the, the second death. And the list he gives is not all-inclusive. It's just represent, representative of people who love and practice their sins. Over in Revelation 21, he gives another list. He says, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Galatians 5 gives a, another list. 1 Corinthians 6 gives another list. They're just representative of people who love their sin. So the, the, the invitation is given. Come. you got to come. Why? Because of the opportunity of heaven and the exclusivity of heaven. And, and then he says this. need to come because of the veracity and the finality of Scripture. For he says in verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. In other words, this is it. We're done. So this is the truth. I testify to these things. The veracity and the finality of Scripture. This is why you got to come. There's nothing else to study. There's nothing else to look at. There's nothing else to read. You come because this is it. And this is the truth. So you come because of the opportunity and the exclusivity of heaven. You come because of the finality and the ver veracity of Scripture. And, and then thirdly, you come because of the certainty and the reliability of his return. It says in verse 20, he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Why do you respond? Simply because he's coming again. That's what the whole book of Revelation was about. The certainty and the reliability of his return. You come. So the Spirit says, come. The bride says, come. The bride, of course, is the church. You come. And then you come because of the availability and the accessibility of grace. He says down in verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all a 
men. A book about judgment ends with a call to come because of his grace. Grace is available. So because of the availability and the accessibility of grace, you come. But all that centers around one last element, one main incentive. And the incentive is found in verse number 16, the identity and the nobility of the Christ. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am the source of David's life and line. I am the son of David's life and line. That's Psalm 110, verse number one. When the Lord said to my Lord, when the Lord God of Israel said to his son, who David called a Lord, sit at my right hand. And I will make all of your enemies at your footstool, as your footstool. And so he says, the reason you come is because of who Jesus is. He's the bright and morning star. He is the descendant of David. He is king of kings. I emphasize this because we need to understand this. This is essential. Why? We live in a world where people don't believe in that anymore. We live in a world where the Pope just said a few weeks ago, not the thing about the civil union of homosexuals. I'm not not talking about that, although that's going to be a major problem for the Catholic Church. I'm talking about the words that he said when he talked about the fact that atheists will go to heaven. That an atheist doesn't have to believe in God to go to heaven. Think about that. In an article written in the uh, Law Republica by the author of Eugenio Scalafari, who by his own words, is a self-professed atheist and a good friend of the Pope. The Pope said these, these words, non-believers would be forgiven by God if they just followed their conscience. He says, you ask me if the God of the Christians forgives those who don't believe and who don't seek the faith. I start by saying, And this is the fundamental thing, that God's mercy has no limits. If you go to him with a sincere and contrite heart, the issue for those who do not believe in God is just simply to obey their conscience. So you have the Pope telling people that you don't have to believe in God to go to heaven. But yet believing in God is not enough because the demons believe and yet they tremble. You just can't say, I believe in God and go to heaven. It's not like that. You have to believe in the identity of the Son of God. You must believe, for there's no other name in heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. And what's the name? The name is Jesus. That's why the angel said, For unto you this day in the city of David has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Savior has been born. The identity of the one born in Bethlehem is the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. 
The identity of the Messiah is everything. That's why when Christ asked the question in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? They say, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. Everybody's saying you're really, really good, but nobody's saying you're God. In fact, they're even saying you're great, but nobody's saying you're God. And Peter said, after Christ asked, but who do you say that I am? Oh, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the one who is equal in nature to the true living God. And Christ said to him, oh, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. He confessed the identity of the Christ. This is so important. John Hagee, who passes a church in, in Texas, who has this organization called Christians United for Israel, says that they do not preach the gospel to the Jewish people because they're going to heaven anyway. So what's he do with Romans 1.16? Where Paul says, I believe in the power of the gospel. Why? Because it saves the Jews first and then the Gentiles. This is what he says. John Hagee says this. It is good for brothers and sisters to sit together in mutual love and respect, and we have made great progress in making that the reality. I'm not trying to convert the Jewish people to the Christian faith. There is nothing that honors Israel in that. He went on to say, in fact, trying to convert Jews is a waste of time. The Jewish person who has his roots in Judaism is not going to convert to Christianity. There is no form of Christian evangelism that has failed so miserably as evangelizing the Jewish people. They already have a faith structured. And I believe that every Jewish person who lives in light of the Torah, which is the word of God and has a relationship with God, will come to redemption. So he has this whole organization about Christians being united with Israel but never want to preach the gospel about the identity of the Messiah to Israel. What is that? What kind of mission is that? You see, the identity of Christ is all-consuming. Everything about who we are is wrapped up in the identity of Jesus Christ our Lord, that he is the supreme king of the universe, he is the all-sufficient God of the universe, and that believing in his name alone and the work he accomplished on Calvary's cross is going to save your soul. If you don't believe that, you'll perish. That is so important to understand. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to help. Why have the book of Hebrews if you're not going to witness the Jewish people? <laughs> the whole book of Hebrews is about, hey, you have a better covenant. You got a better priesthood. Right? Because you got a great Messiah who has come, and this is what he's done. It's a better sacrifice. You got a better hope. Why have the book of Hebrews if you're not going to preach the Jewish people? I don't understand that. And so we have to come to grips with the identity of the Messiah. Because when you go out and preach the gospel to somebody, that's the only question you need to ask. Forget about everything else. There are no other questions to ask but that question. You can't go on to any other question until you identify who is Jesus Christ. If you don't identify that correctly, if they don't want to believe about who Jesus is, walk away. There's nothing else to say. Because everything about the gospel centers on the identity of Jesus Christ our Lord. We were sitting in... Uh, the restaurant. This is my last trip to Israel. We were sitting there with my two guides, and 
<clears throat> they came down, sat next to me, and said, hey, we want to know, why Petra? Why do you go to Petra? I said, well, how much time do you have? They said, we have all lunch. I said, good. It'll take me just about enough lunch for us to be able to tell you, or for me to tell you why. We go to Petra for a reason. We truly believe in the Abrahamic covenant. Do you believe in the Abrahamic covenant? I said, oh, yeah. I said, do you? Because your land boundaries don't believe you believe in the Abrahamic covenant. Because your land boundaries are described 38 times in the Old Testament. Did you know that? And they said, no, we didn't know that. Yeah, 38 times your land boundaries are described in the Old Testament. And yet you're not living according to the land boundaries. But you see, I believe, in the, I believe in the Abrahamic covenant. So much so that when I go to Petra, I talk about the Abrahamic covenant and the land given to the Jewish people. I said, I, I also believe in the Davidic covenant. Do you believe in the Davidic covenant? Well, yes, we do. I said, do you know where it is in the Old Testament? They said, well, well uh, we know it's there. It's in the Psalms. Yes, it's in the Psalms. Yeah, it is. Psalm 89, Psalm 101. Yeah, it's there. Where else is it? Uh, I think, didn't God give it to David and Samuel? Yeah, he did. 2 Samuel 7. Yeah, so you're on track. You believe in the Davidic covenant. So do I. See, I believe that there's a son who's going to sit on the throne and rule in Jerusalem. Don't you believe that? Oh, yes, we believe that. Sure, so do I. See, I believe that because the Old Testament teaches it. I believe in the new covenant. Do you believe in the new covenant? They said, well, explain the new covenant. I said, well, the new covenant is Jeremiah 31, which, by the way, we'll get to next week, Lord willing, because it's in the text of Hebrews chapter 8. I believe in the new covenant and how God is going to sprinkle on the hearts of every Jewish person his blood and cleanse them from all their sin. And they will have a new heart. And you're going to love to keep his commandments. I believe in that. You know why I believe that? Because I received the new covenant. I received the new covenant. You know how I know I received the new covenant? Because you see, young Yeshua is the Messiah. And you missed him when he came. And they're like, oh, okay, we're done. I said, no, you're not done yet. I said, you said you had all lunch, so do I. I said, you must understand who the Messiah is because, you see, your salvation and my salvation all depends on who is the Messiah. That's all that matters. And so I took them through the Old Testament because when you talk to a Jew, you got to take them through the Old Testament, right? And so a lot of things that I've gone through with you over the years, I, I just took them methodically through the Old Testament to show them this is how you know who the Messiah is. You must identify him correctly. That's why we emphasize the identity of Christ. Your identity is wrapped up in his identity. If you don't understand who he is, you'll never understand who you are. Never will. Because who we are only comes to be when we understand who Jesus Christ himself is. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, I want to tell you about his seat. Because he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, every Jew would know Psalm 110, verse number 1. He goes, I don't want to just help you understand his seat, but I also want to help you understand this aspect about the Messiah. I want you to understand his service. His service. So if you're back to Hebrews chapter 8, he says this. 
Verse 2, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not man. In other words, he has a service, a unique service. The word minister comes from two words, belonging to the people and work. So he is the one who works on behalf of the people. In other words, we need to be constantly reminded that Jesus' Jesus's redemptive work is complete, but he never stops working on behalf of his people. Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? When Stephen preached the identity of the Messiah, he preached the identity of the Messiah because he wanted the Jewish people to know that they crucified their Messiah. So he goes to the history of Israel and he preaches this great sermon and the people are so incensed, so enraged because once you begin to identify Christ, people respond aggressively against you or they just passively ignore you or they receive the Messiah. They got so upset, they wanted to take him out and stone him. So they dragged him out of the city it says in verse 54, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Wait a minute, I, th- I thought he took his seat. Why is he now standing? Simply because he sits because his redemptive work is done. But he stands when he receives his own into his kingdom. He stands to welcome you into his kingdom. Stephen's gonna die. Stephen has this vision of heaven and the Messiah standing at the right hand of God the Father because the Messiah is gonna receive him home into his place, the service of the Messiah. It never ends. It never ends. It is an ongoing ministry that Jesus Christ has with his own. In other words, he is always, always condescending to us to minister to us. He's always serving his own. That's why we have such a great high priest. And he says, not only his seat and not only his service, but his sanctuary. For he says these words. He says, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So there's a sanctuary. And this sanctuary, right, is, a, is, the, is the holy place in heaven. It's the great place in heaven. It's the holy of holies. It says over in Hebrews 9, 34, 24, excuse me. For Christ is not, is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but of heaven itself. In Psalm 102, verse number 19, says the Lord looked down from his high and holy place, which is heaven, which is the true tabernacle, he says. Not true versus a false tabernacle, 
because the tabernacle and the temple were not false, they were true. But they were only a shadow. They were only a forerunner. They were only those things that would introduce the eternal tabernacle. So he says, I want you to understand this magnificent, unbelievable ministry of the Messiah. And then I want you to understand the majestic exaltation of the Messiah. And then I want you to understand, point number three, the monumental excellence of the ministry of the Messiah. And this is what he says in Hebrews chapter 8. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Do you understand that? Do you get that? Every high priest offers both gifts and sacrifices. That's what he does. So if this is a genuine high priest who is better than the earthly priesthood, he too must offer gifts and sacrifices. So I'm going to tell you that our Lord today is offering gifts. Understand this. That when he died, he offered the sacrifice of himself once for all. But at the same time, every high priest would not just offer a blood sacrifice. He would offer a bloodless sacrifice, which would be a meal offering. And the meal offering would come from the individual who wants to commit his life. He wants to dedicate his life. He wants to praise his God. He wants to offer thanks to God. He wants to truly worship God, give his life to the God who is willing to cleanse him from his sin. And so this same high priest, Jesus Christ the Messiah, is in the process of offering gifts because he is the true high priest. And what gifts is he offering? He's offering the gifts of you and me. You see, we're just not saved through Jesus. Everything we do goes to the Father through Jesus. Everything. He is that mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's always involved in his mediatorial work. It just didn't happen because he brings you into glory. Everything about being the ultimate high priest is that he continues that mediatorial kind of work because he is that great bridge builder between us and the Father. And so he offers gifts. And the gifts he offers to the Father are the praise that we give, the dedication of our lives, the commitment we offer to our God. Lord, we're yours. You take us. And that gift given is given to the Son, to the Father. Look at Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Let me tell you how it's explained. Verse number 15. Look. Through him... Who's that? That's Messiah. Through him then let us continually offer up what? A sacrifice of praise to God. We only offer a sacrifice of praise to God through the Son. He is our mediator between us and the Father. So when we offer up praise, we offer it to the Son, which is a gift 
that we are giving of our lives, and he presents it before the Father. Can you, can you, can you grasp that? Can you understand the service of a great God and Savior who, who, who condescended to die but still has a service type of ministry to his own even as the majestic God of the universe? That's what he does for you and me. He takes our praise. He takes our thanksgiving. He takes our offering and, and offers it to the Father. Remember Colossians 3? Another example. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Uh, whatever we do, in word or deed, whatever we are accomplishing for the glory of God, we do it through the Son to God the Father, because he is involved in this great ministry of service to his own. When I read that, and I studied that this past week, I thought to myself, that just blows my mind away. That my God, who already came to earth to die for my sins, has been exalted to the highest place of honor, to sit down at the right hand of God the Father, and to realize that one day I can sit on that throne with him because he's going to stand to receive me back or receive me into his kingdom. But all the meanwhile, he is actively involved as my high priest in the service of taking my offerings, my, my gifts of praise and dedication and thanksgiving to the Father, I do through him. And that's why it's acceptable to the Father. Because it comes to the sun. Isn't that great? I look at that and I think, wow. This service of the king, this monumental, excellent service of the king goes way beyond anything you and I can ever imagine. And it's, it's done in terms of sacrifice. It's done in terms of symbolism, and it's done in terms of his superiority. He offers those sacrifices to the Father that we give because everything is done through him. And he says these words. He says, look, now if he were on earth, if Jesus the Messiah was on earth, he would not be a priest at all. If he was still here, he wouldn't be a priest. Why would he be a priest? Wrong tribe. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. So if he was here on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. So he says, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, he couldn't do that because he wasn't in the tribe of Levi. Who serve a copy of, and a shadow of the heavenly thing, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So even Moses knew, listen, even Moses knew that the tabernacle was a shadow. That's all it was. In other words, it wasn't the real thing. When you see a shadow, 
you know there's something casting the shadow, but the shadow is not the real thing, but that which is casting the shadow is the real thing. So he says, even most, and again, remember, he doesn't say, back in Exodus chapter 24, verse number 40, don't you remember what it said in the Old Testament, Moses said this? Doesn't say that. He just quotes the verse. Why? They're Jews. They know the verse. He didn't have to quote the verse to them. They know the verse. So he quotes it. He says, listen, even Moses knew that the tabernacle given to him was a copy, was a shadow, was a figure of what was about to happen in the future. Even Moses knew that. So the excellence of his ministry is seen in his sacrifice and in the symbol that's given through the tabernacle. It's also seen in what we understand to be his superiority. For he says this, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Let me tell you something. This priest, this high priest, this Jesus has a service. Even to this day, he's not on earth because he couldn't be a priest, but because he's in the heavenly sanctuary, the holy place, the holy of holies in glory, which Moses knew was only the tabernacle was just a shadow, a picture of what was going to happen. What has happened is there. And he's offering up sacrifices. Not blood-filled sacrifices, but blood-less sacrifices. The sacrifices of praise, thanksgiving, and honor to the Father. He does that. And you know what? Because he does it in the perfect place, and he's the perfect priest, he is absolutely superior because he ushers in everything that's better for you. Everything. He launches into Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant. That's why the whole text is about the new covenant. We just introduced it to you the last couple of weeks. He's going to launch into the new covenant to help them understand this was all written down. And this is what it is. And this is how you obtain it. This is just a beautiful study of the identity of Christ. My prayer for you today is that when you leave, you are not wondering who Jesus is. You know he's son of God, he's son of man. You know he's God in the flesh. You know that he died for your sins. You know he's coming back again. You know he is at that one mediator between God and man, it's the man Christ Jesus. He will always be the God-man. From the time he condescended and became a baby and was born in Bethlehem, he will always be known as the God-man. 100% God, 100% man, who is the chief high priest of our confession. And he is the only one, the only one who can help you understand sufficiency in Christ to help you live a life of supreme contentment. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for today, the opportunity we have to study your word. Time flies by so quickly. There's just never enough time to cover everything we'd like to cover. But Lord, we just ask that we would have covered those things that were necessary for this day to help us to understand who you are, that we might offer up 
praise, thanksgiving, commitment, dedication to the Father, to the high priest of our confession, who takes them to the Father, that we might glorify your name. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.